another blessed occasion, isn't it, that brings us together this Sunday afternoon hour, and we're so thankful that God has watched over us in health and in other ways that have made it possible for us to assemble and to gather in this way this afternoon. You probably noticed, or perhaps so, as you looked at the bulletin earlier today, that tonight's lesson would involve a particular discussion. This is how to preach. Now certainly, as much as anyone else, I'm in a position to learn a great deal from the Word of God about what's involved in preaching and to do that in a way that would be most pleasing and acceptable to God. But as I say that, I also say this. All of us, whether a person standing in the pulpit or not, can learn much about the text we're about to study this evening, giving thought to the manner in which those services were conducted, what it was that took place, and the way in which it happened. Because that should be a tremendous model in some ways to prompt our thinking, our attitude even today. It is with that I would encourage you to turn with me to Nehemiah, the 8th chapter. In that Old Testament chapter, we have maybe, arguably, one of the most prolific examples of preaching and of other aspects of service to be found anywhere in the Old Testament. As we step through that somewhat interestingly this afternoon, I hope that we'll each be able to learn much from that understanding. Partly, these are some of the things we're going to end up being able to discuss in some detail. As goes preaching in many ways, so will go the church. If preaching is what God would have it to be, then the church will naturally be pressed with matters that should be of great import, and their behavior, their conduct, will necessarily be expected to be as a result of it. But if preaching is watered down, nondescript, rather bereft of the power of the Word of God, then that congregation will suffer because they have not the boldness and the power connected to and attached to that which gospel preaching should have. An old saying goes somewhat like this, You'll never be able to cleanse sinners in the pew with soft soap from the pulpit. Now, as you give thought to that, that's not original with me. But it does have a sense in it in which there's something to consider, isn't it? In fact, even before we look at this chapter, if you just quickly give thought to the panorama of preachers in the Bible, were they bold? Were they uncompromising proclaimers of truth? Or did they bend themselves to the circumstances of whatever the society was trying to please the people? And we all know the answer to that. Whether in Old or New Testament, preaching examples in the Word of God were bold, they were directness in terms of proclaiming the Word of God, whether those who listened liked it or not. Tonight, let us look at Nehemiah, the 8th chapter. You'll notice I've asked that we consider the first eight verses of that chapter, and I'd like to read it in our hearing even at this moment. Nehemiah 8, verses 1 to 8. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate... And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding, upon the first day of the seventh month. 
And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday, before the men and the women and those that could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah and Shema and Aniah, and Urijah, and Hilkiah, and Maasiah on his right hand, and on his left hand, Padiah, and Mishael, and Malchiah, and Hashem, and Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Mishalem. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen. Amen. With lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua and Bani and Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabithi, Hodijah, Maasiah, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites caused the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. Now those first eight verses of Nehemiah 8 occurred, of course, in the time of the long ago, and a great deal had happened in Israelite history prior to this. You and I remember they had gone into captivity in Babylon, had long since come back by this time, a number of excursions had been made to the Jerusalem area, and even Nehemiah had returned and rebuilt the wall. But by this time, you notice that a particular record that we just read began to highlight something that the people asked for and something which Ezra was happy to do. As we turn to our next slide, what are some immediate lessons you and I might draw from the preaching of which we have just read? First of all, you probably noticed it in verse number 1, if I could again draw your attention to it. It says that Ezra the scribe was asked to bring the book of the law of Moses. The preaching that was discussed upon this occasion was a proclamation centered on the Word of God, centered on the book of God, centered on the message of God. At this point, isn't it fair to say that is, we at least give recollection to the kind of preaching that is sometimes prevalent in our day. It's a preaching that focuses on many things other than the Word of God. Social issues, philosophical problems, the approaches and perspectives in one way or another that the man, mankind has deemed to be appropriate. Sometimes there's very little record, reference or recourse to the Word of God at all. But you'll notice that certainly was not characteristic. You may have noticed one other thing in verses 2 and 3. When Ezra began, in fact, with regard to this assembly, it says he read from morning until midday from the book of the law of God. The focus was on that book. The entirety was centered around learning what it had to say and the implementation of it. There was no interest in declaring what governments or what others might declare, or appreciating the proclamations of even the scholarly efforts of men. 
there's no reference to that at all. And so today, isn't it still true that from what we will notice in some verses shortly, the preaching that will be pleasing to God will still focus and center on the nature of God's book. You may notice that that, in fact, will sound a little bit interesting in this life. Do you recall an odd scene in 2 Kings 22? There, as they were repairing the temple, they found a book. The text would seemingly indicate that they were shocked. They were a bit beside themselves at finding a book. What kind of book do you think one might find in the temple and be unsurprised by it? It'd be a book of the law of God. For if there's any place on earth you would suppose that that would be occurring and lifted high and often referenced, it'd be the book of God. And yet in 2 Kings 22, as they were repairing the temple, they find a book and were surprised that when they read it, it was the law of God. And they seemingly were somewhat unappreciative of, or at least somewhat ignorant of what this was. The king, we're told, rent his clothes when it was read in his hearing, for he recognized what it was. And he recognized that they had been unfaithful and disobedient to it. Today, you and I know that sermons may be eloquently presented, and they may make some interesting characteristics for application to better in one way or another certain aspects of the human condition. But if they're not the Word of God they fail miserably to be an element of the kind of preaching that God finds most necessary. In 2 Timothy 4 verse 2, Paul again in writing to that gentleman we call Timothy, his young protege in terms of a preacher, preach the word, he said, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned into fables. That set of statements in 2 Timothy 4 reminds us that the issues or problems that beset to some extent the days of Timothy can still be very much problematic today. Timothy was exhorted to preach the Word. He was given no authority to preach anything else. And so today when we use illustrations or stories or other things in sermons, they ought to be to bolster and benefit an implementation of something in the Word of God. Bear tales and otherwise, in and of themselves, if they are comical in character, they have no purpose in a sermon if that's the only purpose they serve. Preaching that centers on the Word of God. What next might we learn from what we just read in Nehemiah 8? This preaching of the long ago, what about this lesson? Did you notice an interesting appreciation? May I again notice verse 5 with you. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, so he was standing in some elevated place, which is not unusual, at least in terms of our day to day. It says, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. There are times today that you and I might, in fact, consider that not at all an improper thing. With our respect for, our regard for the Word of God, we might even desire ourselves 
we have chosen here at Pippin not to adopt that particular approach. But you'll notice their regard for what Ezra was reading was so great that when he opened it in their presence, they stood up. Not only that, notice what else they did in verse 6. Ezra blessed the Lord. So notice, he proclaimed out of this which he had read characteristics and the nature of God. And as he blessed the God of heaven, no doubt honoring Him, exalting Him, magnifying and thanking Him, it says that as the great God of verse 6, all the people answered, Amen. Today, we somewhat appreciate that a couple of times in a service, we will often think about amen as it relates to prayer. That as the gentleman leading us in prayer closes it, we too might echo the sentiment of that prayer with an amen. Sometimes in the midst of a sermon, a particular sentiment or thought or statement may resonate sufficiently. You may hear an amen during a sermon. Those are fine matters. But you'll notice here when the book of God was read, they responded... After Ezra had stated about blessing God, they answered, Amen. They lifted up their hands, they bowed their heads, and they worshipped. Verse number 6. You'll notice that this, of course, centered on the honoring of God. One of the things that any gospel preaching will do today is it will not center on self, obviously. There's no reason to center on the preacher. He's just a man. He has his faults like everybody else. But when it lifts high the nature of the perfectness of God's Word and the greatness of God, that is noble, and that is honorable, and that is appropriate. And that's what Ezra did. He didn't draw the attention to himself. He didn't seek to bolster his reputation among the group, for that's immaterial. But what is vital and what is so important is the directness of drawing the people nearer to honoring God so that hopefully upon leaving the service, they have a keener appreciation of who God is and what His demand of them is. And they have a greater interest in loving Him and striving to serve Him faithfully. That's one of the great blessings and benefits of our assemblies, isn't it? We may come in a condition of being beleaguered in a world that so often seems misdirected and confused, and we are redirected to the eternal truth of God that never changes. And we are able to leave better able and equipped to recognize our simple statement as a faithful servant in light of what God has taught. That's very encouraging. You'll notice that as Ezra fulfilled that mission in the long ago, oh, how interestingly they were led to worship God on the spot. Today, as we assemble on occasions such as this one, we too realize how special the Word of God is as it impacts our thinking, our behavior in so many ways. How often in the Word of God do we read occasions wherein God's Word led to the honoring of God in almost immediate cases? I selected a very small handful of references to ask for you to consider with me. God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about Him. Psalm 89, verse number 7. You might notice there with me, God is greatly, not merely to be exalted or reverenced, but to be greatly so. Not only that, Jeremiah chapter 1, the marvelous prophet of old, in such boldness was told by the God of heaven, 
Jeremiah, I've put my words in your mouth. And now you go and you tear down and you destroy and you root out and you pull down. And then you plant and you build. You clear the debris, the sin out of people's lives using my word, and then you plant truth so that they will be better equipped and better able to withstand the matters about them and to serve me acceptably. In Isaiah chapter 6, we have that interesting commission of Isaiah wherein he was given that remarkable vision where he saw the, the interesting things that were involved in that commission. But all the while he confessed, I am a man of unclean lips. He recognized his unworthiness. He recognized it his own failures. But God said, it's with my word I've given you to preach. And he even touched Isaiah's lips. And he gave him the consideration of proclaiming that which was the word of God. And today, how blessed we are to have that same word. A lesson number three that we also saw in that reading of Nehemiah 8. Did you notice verses 7 and 8? The, the latter part of verse 7 and then on into verse 8 pointed out that they caused the people to understand the law. And then verse number 8, they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. God's Word was read in that long ago period. You and I remember that the setting of the book of Nehemiah would take us to well over 500 years, or rather over 450 years prior to the birth of the Lord. And so from our day, that's almost 2,500 years ago. And yet, those people, they may not have had the education that you and I have. They may not have had the typical considerations of the people of our world today, but they could understand the law of God. And in part, those that proclaimed it, their duty, their chore, their responsibility was to explain it, sufficiently simply and directly that the people could understand it. Today, any preacher worth his salt will also make an effort to present God's law simply because that's the way God intends it to be presented so that those who hear can understand, make appropriate adjustments in their life, and bring their life into harmony with what God would have them to know and to do. To make it understandable. I might say that there are times today, at least if you read certain articles, or at least if you listen to certain kinds of preaching, that it may seem exalted, abstract, distant, and almost difficult to understand. May I say again that I think it would be certainly a great responsibility for any preacher to appreciate the desire to make it understandable. To take God's Word and present it in the way that one and all can not only hear it, but know exactly what was said and know how to apply it. The effort of the law of God toward that end takes us to a number of New Testament passages that help amplify this thinking. I've asked you to consider, for instance, Luke 19.10. What is the purpose of preaching? We know it's a part of worship in that the law of God or the Word of God is presented and that's by itself interesting. But you and I also know that there is no part of worship 
that's intended to be so lofty and so abstract that it doesn't have a practical significance to what is taking place. The Bible is very clear, isn't it? Everything we do in worship is such that our mind is to be engaged in it and on it so that we are aware of and engage fully in that which is done. That's true of the Lord's Supper. If we don't discern the Lord's body and do so appropriately, we do so to bring damnation to ourselves. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 26 and following. When it comes to the singing, he said, I'll sing with the Spirit and I'll sing with the understanding. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 15. Do I understand the words of the songs? When it comes to prayer, I'll pray with the Spirit, I'll pray with the understanding. Same verse. When it comes again to the Word of God, reflecting on the matter touching it, or even the contribution, we longingly yearn to not only be mentally engaged in them, but that demands that we understand what we're doing. Let's make another application in terms of what's near the bottom of that slide. Paul told Timothy something in 1 Timothy 4.16. He told him to be very committed to the Word of God so that as he proclaimed it, he would not only have a part to play in his own salvation, but in the salvation of those that hear you. Now that couldn't be true unless they understood what Timothy preached. And so Timothy was exhorted to be a very noble servant by proclaiming it in a way that was direct and simple and that they could understand what was being said. As we close that particular slide, isn't it interesting how Paul used that idea too in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 1 and 2? He highlighted, didn't he, in such a beautiful way. When I came to you, I came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul, of course, was laboring at that time, at least by way of that letter, in a city that was positioned very near to the intelligentsia of the ancient era learned and noble and scholarly people. And Paul said, I'm not interested in that. I'll preach nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And that's what he did. And today, you and I, in earnestness, we would also desire that that be the preaching that you and I appreciate too in that. It's to be understandable, that simple Word of God that leads to the saving of souls. Lesson number four. We've already hinted at this one in a way. But since the text emphasizes it again, I thought that we might do it justice by highlighting it like this. I stopped reading a moment ago at verse 8. But if we were to read a little further in the chapter, we will find that on this occasion and in light of these efforts, there was something dramatic and there was something rather amazing. Let me go ahead and invite your attention to it. Beginning in verse 13. And on the second day were gathered together the chief of the fathers of all the people, the priests and the Levites, and to Ezra the scribe, even to understand the words of the law. They continued to be interested in appreciating by way of understanding the law, and then this is what happened. And they found written in the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booths, 
in the feast of the seventh month, and that they should publish and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go forth unto the mount, and fetch olive branches and pine branches and myrtle branches and palm branches and branches of thick trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went forth and brought them and made themselves booths, every one upon the roof of his house and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God, and in the street of the water gate, and in the street of the gate of Ephraim. Might we all be impressed with what we just read? It is true that back in Deuteronomy, as well as in the book of Leviticus, God had given instruction that in this feast of the seventh month, it was His commandment at that feast of tabernacles that they dwell in booths for one week. There is no doubt that that was inconvenient. There is no doubt that that required tremendous effort on their part. Look, I've got a house and I have a tent. Ezra, why should I go and go fetch some sticks and put together this very improper dwelling in some ways and expect that this just should last a week? After all, I have a propensity to be sick and to be ill. Don't you know that if I do this, I'm likely to catch cold? Don't you know that if I do this, I can't exert the labor to go fetch these sticks? And all the other members of my family are passed away. I can't do it. There's no doubt a thousand and one particular discussions might have been given as to why this is unnecessary, why it's unneeded, And why, after all, that was for those people. Don't you know that that was for the people that came out of Egypt? God never intended us to do this. That's not the way the people argued. When Ezra read it, they did it. They did it. Verse 16 said, So the people went forth and brought them. I think we have reason to be impressed with these people. Now, no doubt, in chapters previous and sometimes in chapters following, they moved in directions that were not noble. And they acted in ways that were not good. But when they heard the word of the the law of God read, and it demanded that they go and live in booze for a week, they did it. Today, you and I know what creatures of convenience we can be. We will justify and we will rationalize ourselves. Well, surely that's not what it meant. Surely that's not what the Lord intended. And so today, there are any number of those who have managed, at least in their thinking, to set aside any number of Bible statements having to do with things like female preaching. That's not merely our custom. We do that because the Word of God paints it that way. And they've set aside any number of other things touching aspects of the service. You and I, however, notice that just like the people of Nehemiah's day, they heard it, they understood what it meant, and they did it. Today, our goal is no different. Now, He doesn't command us today to live in booze. That was a part of the Old Testament. But whatever He commands us today, we would hope that a preacher would preach it faithfully, preach it consistently, and set that before us so that we could understand what God said and that we would have an ear to doing it. 
application. As we close that slide, isn't that one of the problems that faced the seven churches of Asia? At least by and large, the churches at Thyatira, at Pergamos, at Ephesus, and others. You'll notice they knew what needed to be done, but they had failed to do it. They had not made application. What about the next lesson we learned from Nehemiah 8? In terms of this is how you preach. May I at least call to our attention something I've called response. And though we hinted at this a moment ago, wouldn't it be fair to draw it out the way the Scriptures have done it here, starting in verse number 3? Did you notice who was present? Again, in verse number 2, Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from morning until midday, before the men and the women and those that could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. This wasn't only for the elders or the men, if you please, or for those aged individuals in the camp of Israel. We're told the men were there, the women were there, and not only that, many of those we'd call youngsters were there, all those that could understand. And as they were assembled, you'll notice that for this duration of time, they were attentive to the book of the law. They had assembled in such a way that their intent surrounded that which was going to be read. They weren't there for social business. They weren't there for coffee and donuts. They weren't there for the other things that might satisfy the palate. They were there to honor God, to be advised of His will, and to exalt His way. And gospel preaching is going to do that today too. It's not going to play to the social issues of life, and it isn't going to play to political custom, and isn't going to play to political correctness, for that has no part, you see, in what pleases God. It's fair to say that the actions of the people in consequence of this, as highlighted in verse 6, were these. All the people answered, not just some of them, Amen, Amen. And as they lifted up their hands, they bowed their heads, and in a state of prostration before the nature of what God demanded, it would suggest they emptied themselves in submissiveness to whatever God demanded of them. And that kind of situation reminds us, doesn't it, about this is how you preach. This is what's involved in it. And this is the way you and I should desire to respond to that kind of preaching when we hear it. Do we prepare ourselves to come to worship? Or do we just show up and take care of an hour on Sunday morning? Maybe two, and then another one on Sunday afternoon. Do we come with a heart desirous of looking into the law of God to perhaps be challenged by it? And when things need to be changed, we have an interest at once to make it so? God demands of us a tenderness, doesn't He? A heart that's ready to change when we understand what His Word demands. The loveliness of gospel preaching, preaching as the Word of God highlights it, brings us to one final slide, and it's the conclusion. 
as we draw this lesson to its finality, this is how you preach. And it would seem to me at least a fine pattern to set before us the attitudes involved. And I would think that preacher training schools would cast a great emphasis, from the Old Testament at least, on the nature of passages like this one. And so many times in the New Testament, as Paul spoke to Titus or to Timothy or even to others, admonishing them in what was involved in preaching, many times was lifted high the matter of at least things that we saw in pattern even in this text. Tonight, I hope that we feel an honor to be able to understand the Word of God, to implement it, to obey it, to do it, and to rest assured in the rewards that it promises. Tonight, as you and I reflect upon ourselves, where do we stand? With regard to gospel preaching, do we thrill at the thought of it because of the message? Or when it offends us, when it steps upon our toes, do we become angry at it? I hope we don't respond that way. Because if that person's preaching the Word of God, it's not his message. It's God's message. And as that message is proclaimed, how dutiful should we be as we think about and honor the nature of what it asks of us. This evening, if there would be anyone in this assembly that would have a desire for us to pray upon your behalf as a wayward child of God, if you would confess those errors, make repentance of them, we'd be honored to pray to God on your behalf. If you have never become a Christian. The moments like this one are rich and rewarding indeed. Won't you obey the gospel? Won't you thus put yourself in a position that maybe from this point forward, gospel preaching will ring the character of your soul as it excites you to ponder not only the demands of God for you here, but all the marvelous eternities of heaven waiting for you to experience. Believe in Jesus. He is the Son of God. He came that you might be saved. Repent of your sins, for they are what drove those nails in His hands. Not only that, make confession of of the greatness of His name. And then as you are immersed, baptized in water for the remission of sins, every sin that you've ever committed is washed away. Forgiven, remitted, absolutely removed. And you can exit that water in a state of cleanliness and wholeness spiritually. That is truly a breathtaking experience. But tonight, if we could be of help in that way, or just prayers of strength, we'd be delighted to offer assistance. Brother Larry has chosen this song of encouragement. If we could be of help, won't you come while together we stand and sing?